0: Hello everyone, welcome back to the Cefi podcast. Many engineering educators aspire to share their work and for it to influence the field. Authors submit hundreds of articles to journals and conferences each year for peer review. However, sometimes the process hits snags with editors deciding to return or reject work even though it has many excellent elements. And even if a study is published, its article may not fully do it justice. So what can authors learn from the editorial board of Cefi's flagship European Journal on how to improve their articles for publication? In this episode, we talk to Christina Edstrom, the editor-in-chief of EJEE.
1: Welcome to the European Engineering Educators podcast by Cefi, the European Society for Engineering Education. Our mission is to develop and improve engineering education and strengthen its image in society. I'm Neil Cook. And I'm Natalie Went. So Neil, on this episode, we're focusing on the development of the European Journal of Engineering Education, um, which I I guess is known as Sefi's flagship journal. Mm -hmm. Um, I published two papers so far in the journal and Mm. done a bit of reviewing. Mm. Um, I found the process like really enjoyable and supportive and in a lot of ways very different from publishing in sort of technical engineering journals, which Mm -hmm. I have a bit more experience in. I do think it was quite intimidating, though, trying to understand expectations of education journals. And I think that's a position that a lot of us feel in as educators. But it did feel like this is something that EJEE are aware of and like are trying to help to support. What have your experiences been of the journal?
0: Well, I've reviewed a couple of articles for this journal. Mm -hmm. I think... um, one issue with editorial guidelines and journals in in general in academic communities is that you go you get that text on the website yeah. and then there's the reality, the unspoken and written expectations of what's accepted for this publication, who the people are to talk to about it, mm. the content style. Um, and I've I've tripped up with that in the, in the past in other fields. Um, so in this series, we've covered research with Bill Williams um, and that kind of broader perspective of engineering mm-hmm. education research. But I'm interested today to hear from someone who's, you know, grown the esteem factor of a journal in in such a short space of time, and and hopefully gain some insights on how to better publish in this
2: area.
1: Welcome, Christina. Thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: So, Dr. Christina Edström is associate professor in engineering education development at KTH, having been an educational developer there since 1997. During this time, she's been involved in engineering education reform at KTH, as well as nationally and internationally. Christina received the KTH Prize for Outstanding Achievements in Education in 2004 and was elected lifetime honorary member of THS Student Union in 2009. Christina is active in CEFI as a member of the Working Group for Engineering Education Research and has been editor-in-chief of the European Journal of Engineering Education, published by SEFI since 2018. She has played a pivotal role in enhancing the journal's scholarly value and practical relevance. Her efforts in fostering a diverse network of reviewers and authors from various backgrounds have strengthened the journal's position. And her commitment to nurturing the next generation of engineering education researchers is evident through her co-organisation of the SEFI Doctoral Symposium, a crucial event at SEFI Annual Conference. At the CEFI 2023 conference in Dublin, Christina received the CEFI Fellowship, which recognised her extensive contributions to the engineering education community. Christina, following your MSc in engineering, you completed a PhD, which focused on the tensions between the academic and professional aspects in engineering education. From a curriculum perspective, a historical perspective and an institutional perspective, I was just wondering if you could talk to us a bit about what sparked your interest in this topic and your decision to move into this area.
2: Well, it sounds like I went straight from my uh, uh, engineering degree to the PhD in education, uh-huh. but it's actually twenty-two years between. Yeah, uh, I was. I've been working since nineteen ninety-seven with educational development mm-hmm. at KTH, and. I would say that we formulated a, a a way to work with faculty on helping them improve their teaching, both the courses, but the programs mm-hmm. also. Actually, from 2003, it was mandated in Sweden mm-hmm. that every faculty member to be eligible as associate professor or professor, you had to have 15 ECTS credits mm-hmm. in, in courses on teaching and learning. So... I've been teaching that kind of course since uh, 2004. Hundreds and hundreds of faculty members Mm, (laughs) have taken that course. And I've been working with the CDIO. KTH is one of the founding members of CDIO. So I've been working on it since 2001. uh, You can say CDIO was Started by a group of academics who felt that we wanted to improve engineering education. We wanted to prepare students better for life and for working life. Mm -hmm. And we wanted, you can basically say, we wanted to give them the education that we wish that we had had. Mm. So, after, let's see, when was it? Around the year 2010. I had already been working for more than a decade Mm. on uh, educational development. I I was uh, totally puzzled because I started to hear the same kind of story from so many places. People were talking about educational development. They had developed their programs, but the way they put it was, As soon as they looked in another direction, the program started to revert back to normal. (laughs) And I heard that story from so many people. Mm. And I started to think, what on earth is this? Is there a natural state for Mm. programs and (laughs) courses?
3: Mm.
2: What are the forces that make programs revert? Mm. What, What is really happening here? And you can say that's when I, I knew that I had to do research. I yeah. had I had to do a PhD. So I started investigating this, I, I was I was very happy I could do it on fifty percent of my time actually, and uh, because I was already almost fifty years old. <laughs> So I, I, was, uh, I was allowed to just follow my curiosity and uh, seek an understanding. Why, why would programs revert? So, so that's how I got into this uh, topic. And I think it's also one of the reasons that I've seen, I've always seen engineering education research as something we do with an eye to making Education better yeah. It can be for, in many different ways. I mean it can be it can be by finding out things that we need to, to be able to develop education. but it can also be to strengthen the people, to develop our competence, to uh, maintain or, or create a good uh, career careers for the people who most care about education yeah if if the people who care most about education are those who have the worst careers that's not good for education mm. mm-hmm. so uh, i think research has has a, a very important position in uh, strengthening education but we need to give good conditions for education we need educational development we really need the boundary people who who are in the boundaries between research and development, and we need to respect that work, and we need to respect those people. So uh, that's my uh, position for Thank the you. research field.
0: Hi, Christina. Hi, Neil. So you've done most of your career at KTH, which is. Kungliga Tekniska högskolan.
2: Excellent pronunciation, <laughs> I have to say. That was super.
0: <laughs> I practiced for a while. Um, and that's the Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm. Um, so just for listeners, it was established in 1827, and has grown to become one of the Europe's leading technical and engineering universities. has over 13,000 students, 1,000 academic staff across five campuses, and one of the facts that I got from uh, my research was that KTH provides one third of Sweden's research and engineering education. So a very large outfit. Could you tell us some more about engineering education research then at KTH?
2: So we have the Department of Learning in Engineering Sciences, mm. but uh, it was established uh, not so many years ago. And I would say that the origin, is actually the educational development work and also the courses on teaching and learning and on supervision for right. faculty. Yeah. So that created a, a team of people who have been uh, grappling with these issues for many, many years
3: now. Mm.
2: And uh, we became like the starting crystal <laughs> for uh, forming a department around yeah. us. We also actually have teacher education programs. We have yeah. a very interesting dual degree program where the okay. students simultaneously become masters of science in engineering, and mm. they are qualified as teachers in uh, various subjects like mathematics, chemistry, yeah. some mm. more. Yeah, so in our department, we have various research groups I'm in the group uh, Higher Education Organization Studies. Mm -hmm. We have uh, Digital Learning. um, We have uh, Engineering Education uh, and a couple of more groups. So we are, uh, I think, one of the, well, certainly the strongest environment in Sweden. Mm -hmm. And you can see there are some other research environments in uh, europe also growing stronger in the past decade or so mm. you have the really big ones like all and uh, yeah uh, but you see uh, look at eindhoven US, ucl mm-hmm. etc great
0: you're here today to talk about the european journal for engineering education would you be able to sort of uh Tell us a bit more about how the journal came about and how Cephi supports it.
2: Actually, I don't know much of its start. Right. <laughs> so it has existed for 48 years. Many years. <laughs> uh, yes. It's almost as old as we are. Yes. Uh, yes. But I think its character was very different in the beginning. Mm-hmm. It was uh, more like a, a Cephi... Uh, journal where you could publish various types of uh, items. Yeah. Uh, So I think it's uh, much more recently that it has evolved into something that is more like a scholarly journal. Right. And uh, actually, it's very interesting, if I can compare it to the American side, where you have the American Association for Engineering Education. Yeah. American Society eh? for Engineering right. Education, ASEE. ASEE. Yep. And they have a journal called Journal of Engineering Education, so mm-hmm. JEE. Yeah. And that journal in 2003 decided to become no longer a professional journal, mm-hmm. but an archive for scholarly work. Right. And in 2005, they added a subtitle, the Research Journal. I think that's cute. Wow, the okay. Research Journal.
0: The Research Journal, yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh, and that has to be understood in the light of what was happening in the United States by then. Yeah. Because uh, the National Science Foundation, NSF, had decided to fund engineering education research.
3: Right.
2: And it was a movement to make engineering education what they called a rigorous discipline. Mm. Both those words are important, rigorous mm. and discipline. Yeah. And in 2005, I think, was this when uh, they started to f- found departments. Mm. <clears throat> if it was uh, Purdue or Virginia Tech that was first, I'm not totally sure. Yeah. Uh, and they, it was a battle cry. It's going to be a rigorous uh, discipline. Right. And there was, a, for a long time in the US, there was a debate on how to make it uh, this rigorous discipline. And there were there were some very interesting papers, and uh, you can follow that uh, development. But I think in the end, uh, they settled for calling it a field. Hmm. And uh, they also recognized that They needed to have uh, methodological diversity, so both qualitative and quantitative. And uh, they settled for a softer (laughs) approach. So you you don't hear rigorous discipline anymore. Right, okay. Uh, But while that was going on, very interestingly, on the European side, uh, Eric de Graaf, who was the editor before me, Right. He strongly resisted this uh, academic urge, okay, because JEE was certainly taking this. It was an academisation, you can you can say yeah. they they wanted to have us um, high caliber research, more <laughs> as, more as selective, possible,
0: more selective, and maybe very very selective.
2: Yeah. They only published something like maybe thirty papers a year or so. Mm. Um, and Eric, Eric de Graaf, he was adamantly defending practitioners, and right. uh, he wanted to keep EJEE a journal that was relevant for uh, call it normal engineering educators.
0: Wanted to be more inclusive, maybe much more inclusive. Yeah, yeah.
2: and and EJEE did publish more papers than JEE, so it it was a, how can you put it, a wider door? Mm. Well, wider door and lower threshold, if you wish.
0: Yeah, okay. So there's a balance there, isn't there, between, I suppose, quality and And, and you scope. can also
2: say in Cephi, there is an ambivalence. Cephi has always... Uh, been of of uh, two minds, what mm. EJEE should be. Yeah, they wanted EJEE to have high status, to have an impact factor. They wanted EJEE to be as prestigious as mm-hmm. JE, yeah. if you wish. Uh, 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 at the same time, they want to be accessible for authors. Mm. Among the Cefi directors, you can you can hear that they are worried that people from certain countries don't succeed in publishing. Yeah, uh, you can hear a lot of work going on in Cefi that is uh, interesting, but they are not able to publish on mm. that work in EJE. So Cefi wants uh, wants a journal that reflects. The, the work that's going on reflects the diversity in SEFI,
3: mm.
2: but at the same time, they want this prestigious journal that is definitely international. We're not just catering to the SEFI community, mm. we are international. We have international readership, we have international authorship, and, and we want to publish the highest quality papers. Yeah. So so Cephi is of two minds, you can say, uh, depending on who you talk to and uh, and on what day.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so thinking about these kind of this sort of tension between researchers and practitioners. So so when you joined um, as editor in two thousand and eighteen, um, what were your aims and ambitions then for uh, for this managing this tension?
2: Yeah. Um, actually, I was just finishing my PhD. Uh, mm. I I finished on the thirteenth of December two thousand thirteen. Yeah. The next, and I had a huge party. <laughs> the next morning at ten a.m., I started working with yeah. the journal seriously. <laughs> we had a a, a backlog of uh, uh,
0: manuscripts. Too inclusive. <laughs>
2: and, but it was it, there was some serious delays, yeah. and uh, so I, I decided it could not be a one man show really? anymore. So I recruited two deputy editors, mm-hmm. marte Van den Boogart and Jonte Bernard, and uh, the three of us uh, started working on in December, yeah. t- twenty seventeen. And there were hundreds of manuscripts in mm. DNA, some were <laughs> submitted like three years earlier. So it was the we called it with a euphemism. we called it the spring cleaning." <laughs> <laughs> a mess. <laughs> yeah, it was a bit of a mess. But since we were three, we uh, managed to turn the journal around in just, say, six months or so.: Great. And uh, so getting the machinery working was mm. so important, because when you're a an author and you submit your paper, you really need to get a response back within a few months yeah. and not a year.
3: Mm. yeah
2: so uh, uh and and of course the the bottleneck is reviewers mm. you need people who are willing to make good reviews. And respond within a reasonable time. Mm. And I don't know if I'll take the opportunity to talk <laughs> a little bit about this. Yeah, yeah. Because if anybody listens who wants to review, send me an email. You will be welcomed with open arms, because if you if you do a little bit of modelling the the flows of a journal, you will understand that. For every paper an author publishes, they should probably make five reviews.
0: One to five ratio. (laughs) I think it's
2: a one to five ratio. Right. Unless you can magically conjure up some people who are not authors but still willing to review. That's funny. That will never work, right? Who would that be?
0: I imagine most people think, well, one-to-one ratio. Exactly.
2: (laughs) That's that's what I've always heard. So I published one paper. Now I've done one review. We're done. (laughs) No, we need – because for every paper that is published, it probably has gotten five reviews. Yeah. Three reviewers in the first round and then maybe two in the second. Uh, That's that's normal. I've done a more detailed modeling because there are – co-authors and etc., But if you want to have author grade people who are reviewers, and I think you do, mm. then it's actually one to five. It's, it's terrible when you do the maths, but uh, that's how it is. So getting reviewers, but also getting reasonably thorough reviewers mm. and getting them to deliver on time that is the everyday challenge of editors and but luckily i have uh, engaged associate editors mm. so when I, when i was when i started in as editor in chief there was no no one but the editor in chief who handled manuscripts mm. so uh, we now have a dozen of associate editors that's good that's fantastic! It mm. has really changed the uh, the dynamic. The, having a team do that work is so much more fun because mm. you can discuss it with each other. You ca- you can discuss cases. You can you can uh, ha- you have troublesome uh, manuscript. You can uh, discuss it with someone else. We can uh, we can develop our own understanding. Of things in a much better way when we are a a bigger team Mm. and it's been so much more fun also to to do the work together yeah and also i mean naturally having more hands (laughs) for the work means that it's uh, it's more feasible i think that's
0: interesting on on the sort of question of rigor in reviews you know you you may review a paper and do quite a thorough job of it, and then you'll see the other reviewers' comments, and there'll be there will be some cursory um, yeah. uh, reviews, and you just think, well, have I done this wrong? Yeah. So, uh, do, you, do you issue guidance to reviewers? Uh, how have you upskilled your reviewers, if you like?
2: I, I think actually, what you describe that you you are copied on, you see the other reviewers' yeah, comments. Yeah. That's a very good form of feedback, mm. because then you see. Oh, they caught that! Or yeah. oh no, I didn't. Oh, oh that's yeah. so clever! Or what on earth did yeah. they? <laughs> do they? You know <laughs> what are they do, trying to do? here? So I think yeah. that uh, that feedback is uh, an extremely effective way to help reviewers yeah. calibrate and uh, also see good and and bad ways of reviewing. But can I just remind us about the function of reviews? Because mm. there are two functions. Mm. The first is to make recommendations to editors. Yeah. So recommending uh, whether to reject it or whether to uh, invite revisions, mm. be that minor, major, or you know, reject and resubmit. Mm. Uh, and the second is to make suggestions. How can this paper be improved, or how should it, how must it be improved to be publishable? Yeah, and so I think uh, those two functions—making recommendations to editors and suggestions to authors—are the the important functions of the reviews. Uh, as As editor, it's very common that I get reviews that are all over the place when it comes to the recommendation, yeah, that's natural in a way because this reviewer sees only this manuscript mm. so it's very difficult for the reviewers to calibrate their uh, uh, quality thresholds yeah but uh, the the other function is so important what what is wrong with this manuscript? What, what needs to be fixed? But mm. also to inspire the authors. How can you improve it so mm. that it becomes uh, much better? <clears throat> because I really love to publish good manuscripts <laughs> good yeah, papers. Yeah. And what will be remembered in the future are the papers that are published. So I want them to be as, as good as they reasonably can be. But mm. to me, a review should be, how can I put it? It shouldn't be too rigorous either. Yeah. There has been a trend of uh, like, uh, the Journal of Engineering Education, the American Journal. Mm. They've had a big program for educating reviewers, and they make enormously comprehensive reviews. It can be several pages of yeah, text. Yeah. I think that's uh, overdoing it. Mm. I, I think uh, I think there is a, an optimum where you give uh, good suggestions, but you don't write a whole counter essay.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I think I've, I've countered that before, as I said in, at the start in the field. I think it is... It, it's easy, isn't it, to review something and completely demolish someone's work, actually. But yeah. You, it doesn't mean you have to. Yeah. A rigorous review doesn't mean you should do that. But
2: um, Yeah, remember, yeah. it's not your paper.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: Sometimes, uh, yeah. No, but I have another pet peeve that Go you're on. not allowed <laughs> to do when you're reviewing. Yeah. You should not try to plug in your own work as references.
0: Yes. The uh, yes, <laughs>
2: some sometimes you get uh, a review saying, "Oh, you have to cite this work," and you get a list of four obscure conference papers from nineteen ninety two.
0: Yes, I remember those that are um,
2: tangentially
0: r- relevant. Yes, and you think why? Why the hell would I put this citation in? And then yeah. you realize, and then right, I then I put a, a big
2: bracket and I write rejected by Mr.
0: <laughs> yeah, <And laughs> that's it's-
2: not allowed.
0: No, but it still goes on, doesn't it? If you um, if
2: you have, actually, if you do have a relevant, some relevant work of yours that would genuinely make this paper better and help yeah. the authors, you can you can suggest it in your confidential comment to the editor. You know, you have two fields: you have yeah, yeah, confidential yeah. comments to the edit- editor, and then you have comments to the author. Yeah. So put your own review up in the comments to the editor and say, I hesitate to uh, toot my own horn and recommend my own paper. But we did actually uh, address the same, and I think it would be a good, strengthen Mm -hmm. their argument for whatever. Mm -hmm. So if you want, you can suggest it to the author. Yes, That's a very polite way of doing it. And then the author can do it. (laughs) The editor can do it on there. Yeah, uh, discretion. It also doesn't violate the anonymity of the no. reviewer. It's so obvious sometimes when they list their own papers who they are.
1: So, Christina, in terms of the sort of remit of the the journal and the expectation, I guess of of authors and and what their their paper does or um, the criteria, like what would you say about that?
2: Yeah. So. Because I had followed the development over several years, Mm -hmm. I had seen what happened in the United States, and I had seen what EJEE was doing in Europe, Mm -hmm. holding on to a much broader scope. Mm -hmm. I had to, uh, when when I was new as editor-in-chief, I wanted to formulate a good position, and I i used the two quality criteria when, when we published the new ams scope
3: mm-hmm.
2: the two quality criteria were usefulness and scholarliness
3: mm-hmm.
2: so scholarliness is quite easy to say what it is mm-hmm. uh, it was uh, we we made a list it should be coherent it should uh, uh, position itself with the existing literature sure. it should etc all those yep. things But usefulness. What is usefulness? That is that that became a very interesting discussion with the authors and with the reviewers. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we got manuscripts in, and they said, "Well, but the students liked it. Obviously, it was useful."
3: Yeah,
2: yeah. Mm -hmm. I say it's not the your work was useful. It is. The paper should be useful to readers yes. outside the context where the work was made. Yes. So w- what does it mean that a paper is useful? Because first people used to translate useful as being practice, practice uh-huh. papers, concrete examples. Example of so practice, mm-hmm. but that's not at all the case. I mean, a, a theoretical paper can be eminently useful. Yes, and if I'm really honest, many of the practice papers, their weakness is often that the paper is not useful for readers outside the context where mm-hmm. the work was made. Yeah, because they are explaining we did this and the students liked it, and but honestly, there there is. A lot of people seem to have a conception of engineering education research that I read a lot of manuscripts where you think that the authors set out to prove that it works. Yes. Hmm. But sometimes they don't even explain what it was. (laughs) There's like one paragraph saying that. We had the students do projects on blah blah blah, and then there's six pages of advanced statistics on what's basically a course evaluation, and I mean it's. Um, I think often proving that it works is very often standing in the way for deeper and more interesting understandings, yeah. and proving that it works. It's so much more. Important to find out why it works, mm-hmm. and uh, so so I think I think we still have to grapple with usefulness. What what does it mean? What are the really useful papers? Um, but also this, I mean, you can understand how this prove that it works phenomenon happens. It's the teacher who does something to their course and think, I want to publish this. Yeah. Um
1: but, I guess to some degree sort of institutional pressure of um
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Proving But it it's off, it's uh, it's more driven mm. by a kind of triumphatory need mm. to to prove their successes. And it's not primarily research driven. Mm-hmm. The aim is not to create new understandings. The aim is to i don't know um, create a merit out of their successful teaching. Uh-huh. and i'm I'm not against that, I have to say. Yeah. but it, but it's not for e j e e That no. is not what I mean with usefulness,
1: yes, yes, yes.
2: But can I mention that CEFI is now starting a new journal? The CEFI Journal of Engineering Education Advancement. Mm-hmm. And that is intended for a uh, broader um m- many more kinds of papers. Papers that uh, EJEE does not really prioritize but that are still valuable mm-hmm. they're still interesting still original they reflect work that is uh, laudable and the authors deserve recognition that mm-hmm. kind of work and i i have to say that over the years i have rejected many papers that i think still deserve to be read mm. but they don't fit the Niche that EJE is occupying at the yeah. moment.
1: So, what might be the criteria then for papers that are that you reject, but are still, mm. you know, still to should be read by some people?
2: I mean, one kind of paper that I actually adore to read are those that are more philosophical mm-hmm. or more like a, starting a debate. Yeah. They can be eminently interesting and readable, Mm. but they are some person's thoughts. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so thought pieces you can call them. Thought pieces,
0: yeah. And
2: I I enjoy reading those. I I mean, ideally, you would meet the author and have a beer and discuss Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) it. Yeah. But it can also be very interesting to read. Yes. But we haven't really found a. Room for them in EJE,
1: yeah.
2: I uh, guess sometimes
1: through like an editorial sort of piece is yeah. that like how an, I would see it. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, no, I, I know what you mean. I feel like they can be very thought provoking and inspire your own work. Those types of, um, but pieces, I also right? think,
2: for instance, uh, if you are if you have a teaching innovation and you want to describe it so that others can use it, yeah. You would not be able to publish that in EJNV. No. Too descriptive. Uh-huh. Mm. But it's so valuable for others. Yes. Yeah, right. So more like uh, handbook papers. Yeah. yeah this yeah, is yeah. how to teach this or that. Yes. Even mm. uh, appending some uh, teaching materials. Uh-huh. Or um, I think that would be, I, I would be super interested in uh, sharing and uh, reading others. It. I don't want to call it teaching tips, because it, but uh, teaching methods, papers. Uh That I think that would be that are that are not like rigorous research. But here's how I do in Mm -hmm. inspirational materials. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's something I would love to see published in the new journal.
1: Yeah, certainly sounds a step forward.
2: And I reject several of those every year
1: okay um so you've spoken a bit about sort of the processes you set up the the sort of pool of associate editors and the different criteria for um papers i'm wondering if you could now talk to us a bit about the sort of trends of the types of papers you've seen and how that's changed since you started um in 2018 so perhaps the the types of topics that are being included within the journal or the methods used, um, whether there's particular things you've seen an increase or decrease
2: in, that that type of thing. I think I see an increase in uh, papers that are, how can I put it, written by people who really specialize in this, uh-huh. who have uh, PhD students right in this field yeah. or who are PhD students uh-huh. in the field. So, they are much more um, by specialized researchers. Right. I think to me that is an indication that the field has developed. People are now having serious careers. Yeah. There are more places where you can actually have a good position and a secure position over many years. You can uh-huh. have PhD students, so obviously some kind of funding. Uh-huh. So, I would say we. We see um, more papers from uh, the specialist researchers who are specialising in engineering education research. Mm-hmm. There are some uh, topic areas that are hot, and where we um, we like to have special issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've been working very proactively with the special issues. Yeah. I like to. Identify a topic mm-hmm. and some uh, some junior researcher who is uh, and and I, I create a team as, like the first one. I'll give the example. The first one yeah. I I did was uh, Jeff Buckley of uh, Ireland and Sweden. Mm-hmm. He uh, so that we were just sitting having coffee. And I was complaining to him, I said, oh, I've seen so many papers where they survey students asking them <laughs> if they feel ready for working life, but mm. why, is, why is, are so few researchers actually going out into working life and seeing how they're doing there? Mm. And we were commiserating, of, yeah, but I know a few who does that, but oh, we, more people should do that and it just dawned on me we can have a special issue do you want to be the guest editor <laughs> <laughs> and we put a dream team together chris wingberg from uh, south africa who is uh, uh, she's more middle aged and uh, james trevenian from mm-hmm. australia who yeah. is the most senior almost semi-retired person in the field then uh-huh. who has done Fantastic work over many decades. Uh, so Jeff and Chris and uh, James became the guest editor team, and I, I just adored that how how diverse their team was, international, yeah. and how it also was a good uh, thing early in Jeff's career uh-huh. to get this network. I mean, all the people who re- published in that issue and all the reviewers that they engaged. And of course Jeff had to do the grunt work. Yeah. The <laughs> Chris and James were more like his senior advisors. Yeah, they yeah. were so and I think using special issues to um, to to make that kind of relationships happen mm. and to help establish younger scholars. Yeah. Is that and then the issue when it was published it was amazing it was uh, it was really putting some stakes in the ground mm. uh, making a state of the art issue and so we ha- that's the pattern that we have been following since and right now we have two calls open for special issues one is on emotions in engineering education uh-huh. which is a new hot field and it's a super international team mm. uh, who are behind it. And uh, the other is on, actually, actually, that deadline just closed, sorry. <laughs> but the one with the open deadline now is on interdisciplinarity yes. with uh, Carolina Dolugiri, who won the best paper award in uh-huh. the CEFI 2022 conference. And... Uh, also Jan van der Veen from uh-huh. Eindhoven, and Annette Kolmos and Henrik. So putting people together on, and um, Bobby Mitra from MIT, uh-huh. putting people together on a topic that is broadly interesting and really making something out of it, that's what I want to do with yeah. the special issues. Yeah, great. And that, not just like, that means I don't just see the trends. Uh, uh, we are part of creating them, <laughs> yeah. if you wish. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So, Christina, you have talked about how the um, authorship of the journal has changed over time, and we have these um, dedicated researchers now um, having an increasing um, presence. I suppose they've brought with them new methods um, could you perhaps tell us a bit more about how the the research methods have changed over time? And, um, you know, if somebody wants to publish now in EJE, what kind of methods should they be looking
2: at? Yeah, methods is, is really interesting yeah. because we have the, there is an assumption that We are a bunch of engineers, (laughs) and to make good educational research, we just need some methods. Mm, Yeah. So we should learn some methods from uh, adjacent fields, educational research in particular. Now, I think that view on research is very much a friend of this uh, prove that it works Mm, idea. Yeah. Because if we think, I'm just going to prove that it works, then you think i just need some methods to do it rigorously yeah so i think the focus on methods first of all we have to we have to think about it. you can you can look at research as problem led or method led right okay. in the method led case it means that you follow a method uh, rigorously or in a disciplined fashion to wherever it leads because the method will ensure that you reach truth.
0: Okay, yeah.
2: But if if you think of it as problem-led, your starting point is some kind of problem somehow rooted in in practice or some area that you want to address. And then the method is secondary. Mm. The method has to suit your needs. And the quality is ensured not by the methodological rigor alone, but by the light that is shed on the problem. Mm. What what you come up, what, what your work creates that is relevant to the problem. Mm. And that means, and, and I think engineering educational research must be problem-led. Right. Because we are all, assuming that we should be relevant for engineering education that means we are studying problems that are somehow rooted in practice they don't yeah. have to be practical questions no. but they should be relevant for engineering education practice hmm. and that means the problem should decide what method to use right so we can be <clears throat> we can borrow methods from many other fields Mm. and use them depending on the need of this study. So um, I think methodological diversity is very important. I mean, whenever we do something, we we really do want to uh, have good methods, good defendable procedures. It should. It must be possible to follow what was done, so that we can evaluate the results. Mm. But uh, it's it is still uh, uh, a little different emphasis when when our starting point is the problem, and actually often the problem solving, the how how we handle and work on those problems. That's our starting point, and that's the perspective from which we evaluate the results. Having said that, methods should be transparently described, etc.
1: So, Christine, as we've gone through the podcast today, we've spoken a lot about the sort of tensions and the different criteria for publishing in different journals. I'm just wondering if you've got any practical advice with respect to sort of um, how you go about work, how you design it, or... Like how you plan where to submit a paper.
2: Yeah, I can. I can, I can say what we do with our PhD students. Uh-huh. A, a PhD student will, at least in in our country, they mm-hmm. have um, they take courses. Yes. So they take courses on uh, um, research design and research methods. Yes. <clears throat> and actually read around much more broadly
1: yeah.
3: than
2: than you would do to just design one study. So yes. I think it's but for instance a lot of people see methods as something quite instrumental, but methods is part of a, a much wider research design and the way we see our research. So it uh, for instance sometimes you see people who have uh, uh, interviewed, made uh-huh. interviews, mm. and then they start counting. Three respondents said that, and eight oh, respondents yes, say okay. that. Yeah, <laughs> and that tells me they are not comfortable in that qualitative method. Yes, because they're sort of uh, drifting <laughs> into yeah. a bit of quantitative mm. thinking. Yeah. Uh, so, so you have to look beyond just. The how-to of methods and yeah. see how it's part of a research paradigm and yes. research design. Yeah. So, I, I'm not sure if you need to read for several years to get that. I think most intelligent people can actually, um, mm-hmm. in, in educate themselves. Yeah. On that, the other thing I would advise people to do is to read. Actually, it's a very important aspect of writing is to read Mm -hmm. so read read what's in the journal to see what's required by a manuscript to see good work and Mm. work that you can critique you will see that the quality threshold is not up there in the sky Um, you you can make like a journal club that's what we do with the PhD students And we can read, for instance, uh, uh, two issues, one issue of one journal and one issue of another journal, and we compare what seems to be important in these journals, or we decide to read three or four papers by the same author to Uh see how they are working on something that we we read to see what is convincing, writing, what is... What is a coherent paper, yeah, and after a while you begin to see you can see, oh, this paper it's like a horse, but it it has a leg on its back, also pointing upwards <laughs> <laughs> it's uh you I think with the reading experience you it's much easier to shape your own papers, yes, for sure, once you've seen that, yes, now, this is I mean. Uh, it's fairly new that people have a PhD in this field, mm-hmm. but uh, so if you are a fifty-year-old engineering educator and you want to publish, I think the advice is still the same: read, educate yourself, yeah, uh, work with others, yes, and. Uh, in CEFI, in the in the CEFI conference in Dublin recently, there we had a panel in the beginning, and I talked about the two elephants in the room where in, in engineering education research, where the uh-huh. first elephant elephant is the idea that we do engineering education research to contribute to the improvement of education.
1: Uh-huh. Hmm.
2: This usefulness criterion, yes, and and that that is that's a wonderful elephant that we can ride on and we can play with. It does eat a lot of food, so we have to keep <laughs> it fed. But but it's a very enjoyable elephant. The second elephant, I'm not so uh, thoroughly happy about. That's the idea that it's us, the engineers, who should do engineering education research. Uh-huh. Now, in a way, that is wonderful because we are energetic, action-oriented, uh, can-do people. Yeah. And uh, we, we came to this field because we are passionate about engineering education. Uh-huh. So we really have a motivation. It, it also creates support from our institutions. Our institutions want to improve engineering education. That's why we are getting more and more secure positions to do this work. And it's also, we are the ones who need the new understandings to be able to implement new ways to better education. So we are, we are the recipients of that work. But there is a drawback with this elephant, and it's the idea that it's only engineers who should do it.
1: Uh-huh.
2: And so, some people think then, oh, we just need some methods. We just need to borrow some methods from yes. Uh, in education. Yes, I think we should uh, work a little bit on our humility yeah. <laughs> and our openness and our curiosity to other disciplines. Mm-hmm. And we should work on being... Warm and welcome to other allies and partners. I don't know if you've been in a room where somebody felt compelled to say, Oh, I have to start by saying I am not an engineer. But I'm thinking, (sighs) what kind of culture have we created that we compel people to immediately otherize themselves? Yes. I think Mm. we should uh, work on creating a more open atmosphere where people feel validated and they know that they have something to contribute here. And I think we need to work with scholars in uh, other fields, educating ourselves in the process and uh, widening our perspectives. I I think we really need... We can still be proud engineers. Yes. <laughs> so let's not be ashamed of being engineers, and we mm. we are very action oriented. And but we also have this "how hard can it be?" Yeah, attitude, yeah, yeah. which is not uh, helpful. So, uh, and and I know a lot of people who don't have an engineering background, but who have established themselves really wonderfully, and they are interested. Yeah. But we can we can uh, improve our compatibility yeah. a little bit to working with others and and uh, yeah, I think probably humility and curiosity are mm. the two most important things to work on when it comes to that second elephant because we make ourselves look so stupid when we're just tooting our own horns mm. <laughs> and and it makes. Takes away from the quality of our work, yeah. Because we're it's a amateurs' night sometimes, <laughs> and we don't realize the treasures that they have in other disciplines. When it comes to absolutely not just methods, but in their conceptual frameworks and their perspectives, I think that's uh, there are so many things to to get. So we need to keep a much better openness. Yeah. Sorry, that was my pet elephant. I like it. Yeah, same. Oh, I do have another piece of advice. One way to actually educate yourself as author of engineering education manuscripts, that is to become a reviewer. Oh, yes. Because when you read and critique the work of others, you are educating yourself. Mm. And I think it's also something that we invite PhD students to do because I think it's part of becoming an academic is to uh, understand how the peer review system works. And it's so much easier to take your own manuscripts through the review process once you have experienced it from the other side too. And PhD students, of course, have uh, recent, um, they are very updated on the literature and they are very knowledgeable. So Mm. I really welcome PhD students as reviewers, but also for for anyone who wants to publish, I think reviewing is one of the best schools, how Mm. to develop manuscripts. Sometimes it's so much easier to see what someone else should do with their manuscript, yeah. And uh, it's a really good way to learn, and you get the feedback because you see what other reviewers wrote and how the editors ruled. Mm. So that's a that's a really good activity for honing your own skills. But for a lot of qualitative research, I'm more interested in in uh, protecting the. The
0: informants mm, yeah, so Christina, we've talked a lot about the the trends um in uh, publishing today then could we move on to maybe talking about the whole landscape for publishing in engineering education research um you know compa- comparing sort of e j e with it with the other journals out there we've already mentioned j e a e e but I suppose for listeners um they might be thinking oh I, I want to do some work um where would the best place be to publish it? Um, you know those kind of questions that people ask themselves. Um, could you describe this uh, engineering education research publication landscape for us?
2: Yeah, I mean first you have the conferences, of course, yeah you have the CeFI conference, the CDIO conference, other other high caliber educational conferences. yeah uh, and then and of course, it's often very good to start by publishing there mm. to uh, uh, to get the feedback. And then maybe the next iteration you want to publish it in a journal. Yeah, And I have uh, great hopes for the new CEFI journal, the CEFI Journal of Engineering Education Advancement, mm-hmm. uh, that it will be very feasible to take your conference paper mm-hmm. and Iterates one more time and uh, it could hopefully be published there. Mm. I think if you are thinking of what journals to publish in, I think you should check out the journal carefully that you don't fall into the hands of a predatory journal. And that's uh, one of the reasons I'm so grateful for CEFI to start a new journal because I hope it can take away some of the author's needs to publish in predatory journals.
0: Interesting, yeah. So for people uh, who may be thinking, well, how do I know if this journal is predatory? The the advice would be, what's the association? Is there an, a, is
2: there an association behind? That's yeah. a very clear sign of legitimacy. Mm. Is there a recognized publisher? Right. It's, um, well, I, you should really look at the publication charges yeah. and uh, just see which, which are the expensive ones.
0: Mm. And avoid.
2: And avoid. Yeah. Other than that, read some issues of the journal, mm-hmm. some recent issues, mm. because then you see what is the quality threshold, yeah. what is required from a manuscript, you can see who are the people in the editorial board. Mm. Is there anybody you know? Mm -hmm. Is there anybody you can uh, meet in a conference and uh, ask some questions? Mm. I think you will get a very clear indication whether it's a predatory journal or not, Mm. if if you ask them privately. If they say, oh, they asked if they could use my name, I don't know so much about it. That's not a good journal.
1: So, Christine, you've told us lots about how you've sort of changed the journal and your sort of beliefs um, about engineering education research in Europe and its future. I'm just wondering um, if you've got any views about what legacy you'd like to leave in terms of your time as editor. For EJEE,
2: yeah, I think um, I think EJEE has evolved together with the field as a whole. Mm. You can see that the field is uh, much stronger, and uh, EJEE has been one contributing factor. But we've yes. also just gone along with the having a much stronger community of authors. uh Uh, i'm uh, what i've been working so much on during those six years and i'm not saying i'm gonna quit now (laughs) i I might be carrying on for some time (laughs) but i've been working hard to establish first of all transparency and an understanding for what the journal to position ourselves clearly to discuss the deliberations that we are choosing, because they are not philosophical issues. Mm. They have concrete implications for people of flesh and blood.
3: Yeah.
2: Uh, So communicating transparently about what this journal is and is not has been a very important thing for me. And also to grow the community around it. So growing the community of editors to make us strong having the capacity to handle all the manuscripts, and growing the community of authors, like we have the doctoral symposium in conjunction with the CEFI conference. This year in Dublin, there were 37 PhD students who came, and they met uh, 20-something seniors in the field, Yeah. We were all so starstruck in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> it was, the list of people was fabulous, but the atmosphere was so warm mm. and welcoming and open. Mm. And one of the PhD students said, he said, in my own university, I am the oddball, mm. but here is my community. Mm. And we just felt, yeah, we are a great community of (laughs) oddballs. So we were oddballing the whole thing. (laughs) Uh, So so, uh, making the PhD students feel embraced and empowered in this field has been important. Involving them as reviewers, uh, growing a a great network of reviewers to... uh, support their own development, but of course also to help the journal work as it should. Uh, and this community, is, it's going to be easy to find my successor. Whenever I say I want to quit, it will be easy to find someone to take over because it's a very strong community. Uh, so, and, and the relationship between CEFI and the journal I think is also something that has improved immensely. It's we have felt the full support of Sefi. Mm-hmm. We we have felt that Sefi loves its journal, and yeah. we love Sefi back. <laughs> and at the same time, Sefi has established uh, in its own statutes the independence of the editor. So yeah. it's uh, it's very much. Uh, a form of mutual respect where we collaborate on some issues i mean we renewed the contract with taylor and francis and things yes. uh, many practical matters but uh, with great independence for the journals uh, I say, i'm saying journals now because we're getting yeah. a sister journal yeah. uh, and i think it's a, it's a very prosperous relationship and i pity the journals that don't have an association a mother association, because they really miss out on something. They miss Mm. out on the legitimacy, they miss out on the practical support, they They miss out on having that community for you. I mean, it's uh, every year at the CEFIC conference, we can just renew that uh, relationship with the community. It's uh, amazing.
0: So, Christina, thanks very much for um, being our guest today. Uh, we always finish the podcast with uh, some final advice um, for listeners. So what advice could you give them?
2: Yeah. Well, first of all, to start reading the journal, read the work that we publish. Yeah. We can get uh, automatic email alerts so that you get the papers as they are published. And uh, you can... Uh, we uh, At the CEFI conferences, we have workshops. This last conference, we had two workshops, one for prospective reviewers and one for prospective authors. Mm. Those are really wonderful opportunities to get to know the people behind the journal and to chat with them mm. informally. And to see that uh, everyone else is just a human being. <laughs> <Just> like <laughs> yeah. uh So uh, starting to uh, check out the uh, journal activities in the conference is a a really good way to start being part of the community. There is also the special interest group on engineering education research, Mm -hmm. which is uh, like a sister or part of of the journal where uh, you will meet other interested people. And then just start to review, start to write. If you don't get published, there might be other publications to send your first manuscripts to. And rejection is normal, so it's not nothing to worry about. Just keep trying.
0: Keep trying. Thanks, Christina.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
0: So Natalie, I've reflected on this episode, and Christina shared a lot of wisdom from sort of overseeing the review process for countless research papers, mm-hmm. hundreds, to be exact. And um, a couple of things from our conversation mm-hmm. I mean, first off, this idea that our papers should lean towards being more sort of problem led rather mm-hmm. than method led. Um, you know that, that that really resonated with me. I, th- I think we need to dig much deeper into you know what's behind our research questions mm. then the other sort of thing was there's that this idea that and it was related was many studies sort of lack context and generalization mm. sort of leaving them with this sort of limited audience you know that was my main takeaway really was christina was trying to encourage us to sort of see the bigger picture mm-hmm. um, when we're doing um, this research and what were your thoughts
1: Yes, some similar, really. I guess, like you touched upon there, the, the sort of what Christina referred to as the usefulness, um, I guess, and some yeah. research is only useful to others if we understand the context and maybe how we can apply the findings in our own context. Yeah. Um, so I think I definitely also was thinking about my own research, and I know sometimes I tend to just research things I become fascinated with and don't normally think about the audience and <laughs> necessarily yeah. what it's for yeah. um and I think it's really got me thinking about like scholarliness versus usefulness and maybe how I need to design research in that way and you know target certain things and yeah I think Christina reiterated really that there's a there is a place for for different things but mm-hmm. um you know maybe the the journal's not the place for everything no um I guess then the the other sort of thing that stuck to my mind was like how we can work as a community together to, to support one another in producing good yeah. research. So, you know, things like um, reviewing papers for the journal and, yeah. you know, learning from that how to write better papers ourselves. And mm-hmm. I think that's a, another key takeaway for me.
0: Mm. Okay, so thank you for listening today. And um, we hope that you've taken away some new perspectives on engineering education research in the Journal for Engineering Education. And thanks again to Christina for coming on and uh, sharing her deep and experienced perspective on this area.
1: And as ever, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with colleagues. um, And you can also sign up to the podcast wherever you get your podcast from. Also, if you'd like to join and be a guest on the podcast, please do get in touch.
0: So that's all for now. Take care, everybody. See you soon.
1: Bye.